Amen. Thank you, buddy. Great job. Take your Bibles, turn again to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, verse number 1. Let me set the stage for you. Jesus has just emerged at dawn from his religious trial before the Jewish religious leadership where they have established, at least to their own satisfaction, that Jesus is guilty of blasphemy. It was Jesus and his admission that he was the Son of God that had enraged the members to the point that they had called for his death. The religious rulers have, could have gotten away with a vigilante stoning of Jesus, but Caiaphas, who is the high priest at this time, wanted Jesus crucified. He didn't want Jesus just dead. He wanted him discredited. He wanted it to be demonstrated to the common people that Jesus was under a curse. Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 3 reads, For he who is hanged, crucified, is accursed of God. Caiaphas, the high priest, thought that if the people saw Jesus crucified, they would be forced to say he cannot possibly be the Messiah. It never entered into Caiaphas's mind that he was fulfilling prophecy. But the religious leadership had a problem. They had no authority to have someone crucified. For that, they needed the Romans. So it is for that reason that early on Friday morning, they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Hall of Judgment, the Praetorium, which was the governor's official residence. I want you to see with me four things this morning. First of all, we're going to see Pilate meet Jesus. Pilate meets Jesus. Verse 1. And when the morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. <clears throat> and when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. In verse 2, we're told that the Roman governor was a man by the name of Pilate. The gospel writers actually called him governor of, uh, of Judea. His actual title was prefect or procurator. He is in the Roman system a governor of a small territory that needed close watching. The main job of the Roman provincial governors were that they were to keep things under control, they were to collect the taxes, and they were to keep the peace. When Pilate arose that morning, I suspect that little did he understand that he is going to be confronted with the greatest decision of his career, in fact, of his life. The question is that he is confronted with is the same question that each of us faces in our life. And that question is, what will I do with this man named Jesus? Matthew explains that all of this happened early in the morning. 
And that's important because under Jewish law, a case that involved the possibility of a death sentence could not, be, could not take place at night. So the Jewish leadership at least wanted to give the appearance of legality to these proceedings. The second thing that we see is Pilate questions Jesus. As Pilate begins to deal with Jesus one-on-one, he, he asks him a series of questions, which I think are going to be instructive to us as well. Just one little sideline. There is no indication that there is an interpreter present between Pilate and Jesus. So what language did they speak in? can probably assure you that Pilate did not know Aramaic. He didn't like the Jews. Probably not likely that he's going to learn their language. Probable that Jesus spoke Greek as well as Aramaic and that he and Pilate conversed in Greek. Just something to think about. Question number one that Pilate asked Jesus and that all four Gospels agree, as the first question it says, As Jesus stood before the governor, in verse 11, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And so Jesus said to him, It is as you say. Are you the king of the Jews? Now this, in a sense, is a legal question, but you can hardly miss that it is probable that it is also a Skeptical exclamation, as in, you are the king of the Jews. It's not hard to understand that Pilate might have a little difficulty believing that Jesus is a king. Before him stands a man who is dressed as a peasant, who is, his clothes are stained with sweat and blood, and his features are already swollen almost beyond recognition. Jesus answers Pilate's question in verse 11, and he literally answers it with just two words. You say. You say. By letting Pilate's words speak for themselves, he's saying, yes, I am king of the Jews, but you, Pilate, don't know what that means. In John's account, in John chapter 18, Jesus clarifies to Pilate what kind of king he was. In John chapter 18 and verse 36 we read that Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, and so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Jesus proclaims himself to be a spiritual king. He says, if my kingdom were of this world and it's not, then my servants would be fighting and they're not. Two words, you say. Beyond that, Jesus says nothing. Despite a long list of charges that are brought against him, he doesn't defend himself against the false and inconsistent testimony before the Jewish trial. Neither does he now answer the charges that the Jewish council brings against him before Pilate. The Roman governor isn't accustomed to such silence. 
Defendants either profess their innocence or they diligently assert that the, the righteousness of their cause. Jesus does neither, and so Pilate is amazed. Question number two is found in John chapter 18. In the middle of the discussion of what kind of kingdom he possessed, Pilate asked a rather intriguing question. Your own nation and chief priest have delivered you to me. What have you done? Your mother has probably asked you that question sometime in your childhood. What have you done? Pilate wanted to know what Jesus could have done that have so aroused so much hatred. The Jewish leaders had dragged him before the Roman governor and they were obviously set upon attaining his death. Obviously something lay behind all of this maneuvering and Pilate would like to know what it was. Clearly, Pilate was not prepared to regard what the high priest told him as being necessarily the truth. There was something going on here which Pilate did not completely understand. But what he did understand, he didn't like. Question number three, verse number 12. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered, Nothing. And then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him nothing, not a word, so the governor marveled greatly. In Mark chapter 15 and verse 10, we learn that the Pharisees were doing this, and Pilate realized they were doing this because they were envious of Jesus. Pilate was many things. But he was not a fool. He saw through the empty charges and he understood what the religious leaders were trying to do. The priest wanted the kind of power and authority that Jesus exerted among the people. The kind of authority and power that Jesus had repeatedly demonstrated. And because they did not have it, they were angry and envious. And the envy of the religious leaders kept them from receiving Jesus. Envy is a powerful emotion. You may say, well, I don't see how that really applies to me. I'm not envious of Jesus. Well, the reason that the religious leaders rejected Jesus was that his, his life and his words were an awful mirror of their own actions. And the Bible tells us that the Word of God reveals us. It is a mirror of our actions. And it is Jesus and his life that sets that example. When we are convicted, we either repent or we get angry. But either way, it causes a reaction. After determining for himself that Jesus is innocent, Pilate did his best to escape the responsibility of sentencing Jesus. In fact, John tells us three times that he declares that Jesus is innocent. Pilate tries several different strategies to try 
to evade the responsibility. Luke tells us that first, <clears throat> Pilate has an aha moment. He's hearing the proceedings and he hears that Jesus is a Galilean. Aha. That means he's under the authority of Herod the king. So according to Luke chapter 23, he is sent to, to Herod. Herod tries to get Jesus to perform some miracles. He refused. Pilate, in keeping with his cruel nature, dressed Jesus in royal robes, has him beaten, sends him back to Pilate. Secondly, as we see in our passage today, Pilate offers a compromise, a choice between Jesus and a man named Barabbas. And third, he has Jesus scourged, severely beaten. He thought if he had Jesus beaten and brought back before the public that maybe they would be in sympathy for him. But it did not happen. Third, I want you to see that Pilate judges Jesus. Pilate knew that he ought to release Jesus. But he also knew that that would not please the Jewish leadership. The gospel accounts tell us that literally they threatened Pilate. If you let him go, we're going to tell the emperor that you're causing problems. He had already caused problems enough that he was in fear that one more time that it would get him relieved of his office. So he tries a different course in verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude a prisoner whom they wished. So Pilate decides to appeal to a, a tradition, the tradition of the Passover amnesty, in which one prisoner is released from prison during Passover. The compromise is the offer of Barabbas or Jesus. Verse 16. And at the time they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you? Now, Pilate thought this was a no-brainer. Do you want me to release to you Barabbas? Or Jesus, who is called the Christ. For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. So he offers two men. Jesus and a notorious criminal named Barabbas. The man named Barabbas is an interesting character. In verse 16 he's described as notorious. The word really indicates notable or famous. It appears that Barabbas was well known in Jerusalem and in some kind of twisted way he was a patriot, something of a hero. And he had a large following. It may be as indicated by his name if we consider what it means, Bar, which means son of, Abbas, which means father, son of the father. Father can also be translated rabbi, that he was the son of a prominent rabbi in the city of Jerusalem. Paul tells the readers that Barabbas, or Mark tells the readers that Barabbas was a rebel. 
The King James Version uses the word insurrectionist. The Greek word means one who rises up against existing authority. Today we would use the word terrorist. One, one who was willing to use any means necessary to achieve his goals. He would be much like the groups in our world today, Hamas and the PLO. He is also identified as a murderer. No doubt this was carried out as a part of his rebellion against Rome, a man who did not hesitate to murder to achieve his ends. John tells us in John 18:40 that he was also a robber. Josephus, the Jewish historian, reveals that he is called a robber because he was a member of the Zealot Party, and the Zealots, which was a national nationalist movement, supported themselves by robbery. If I just cut through all of it, Barabbas was a thug. In our day, he would be called a terrorist, a man who could kill with no emotion whatsoever. So the contrast between the two men who are offered could not be more extreme. Jesus or Barabbas. In the middle of this proceeding, as Pilate is trying to work out a compromise here, he receives a message from his wife. Verse 19, And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man. For I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. So while Pilate is trying to make a decision, a strange message comes from his wife that she has dreamed about Jesus and the dream has upset her. She sent word to her husband to do him no harm. There is no reason to think that Pilate's wife had ever seen or heard Jesus. It's doubtful that she knew much about him other than rumors. That's what really makes the story so remarkable. In that tiny moment before the verdict came down, Pilate's wife sent a message from God. Now, no doubt, Pilate paused for a moment. We know all of us as good husbands, we always listen to our wives, take into consideration what they say, and then do what we want to. And that's exactly what Pilate did. Seriously, surely the message from his wife caused him pause. For the ancients set great store by dreams and visions. Now notice the choice of Barabbas in verse 20. But the chief priest and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. The crowd had a clear choice. They could choose between two very different saviors, if you will. One who was seeking to bring salvation or deliverance to the people of Israel through violence and self-effort. The other, salvation by repentance and faith. And they chose Barabbas 
over Jesus. In fact, the Gospels say, and they all chose Barabbas. Now, why did the crowd choose Barabbas? Well, we know that certainly the religious leadership was stirring up discontent. But I think the answer seems to be that there was was disappointment, disappointment with Jesus. Some of those who are present here were present just a few days previous when they welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem with shouts of acclamation. This city contained countless people who Jesus had touched, some of whom he had healed. Jesus had personally touched hundreds of people who were present. Yet disappointment of this crowd caused them not to receive Jesus. All their ideas of what a Messiah should be was wrapped up in their idea of political deliverance from oppression by Rome. And when they saw him as not the Savior that they expected, they were unwilling to accept him. When they saw him standing helpless, or at least appearing to be helpless, before the Roman governor, and they witnessed his inability or his unwillingness to defend himself, their loyalty vanished. They were disappointed that he was not the kind of savior that they were expecting. Many people in our day would still choose Barabbas, a worldly deliverance of self-effort. There is something interesting that I want you to consider about the man Barabbas. Barabbas was the only man in the world that could say that Jesus took his place physically on the cross. There were three crosses on that hill that day. Two of them were for his co-conspirators. The third one should have been Barabbas's. But I can say that Jesus took my place spiritually. For I was the one who deserved to die. It was I who deserved the wrath of God. I deserved the the eternal punishment for my sin. But he was lifted up for my offenses. He was handed over to the judgment because of my sins. Christ was my substitute, and he was yours. And he satisfied the debt that your sins demanded. Fourth, Pilate sentences Jesus. Verse number 22. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said to him, Let him be crucified. And then the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? And they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was raising, rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. And then he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, 
he delivered him to be crucified. Pilate's final question is perhaps the most important question of all, and it was about Jesus, but it was not addressed to Jesus. When the crowd demanded Barabbas, Pilate said, what shall I do then with Jesus? In the end, it came down to this. Pilate knew he should release Jesus. In fact, he wanted to release Jesus. But he wanted to release Jesus without any cost to himself personally. He wanted to let him go, but without having to take a personal stand. Perhaps he admired Jesus, but not enough to believe in him. He yielded finally to intimidation and public pressure, and he sentenced Jesus to die. But in the final act of a tortured conscience, he took a bowl of water and he washed his hands. Matthew is the only one of the gospel writers to tell us the story. It was a symbolic gesture. It was intended to indicate that he did not approve of the crucifixion of Jesus. The ceremony meant he is innocent and so am I. However, what Pilate found out was this. The shed blood of Jesus will either cleanse you from all your sin or it will be on your hands for all of eternity. Pilate's final question to the crowd still rings across the centuries. What shall I do then with Jesus? But in truth, the story today is not about Pilate. His story stands written. It's your story that hangs in the balance. The question that Pilate struggled with is the one that we each must face as well. What would you do with Jesus? For some, it's a question of salvation. Will I turn to him for forgiveness and new life? For others, it's a question of discipleship, servanthood. Will I do what he said or will I trust my own judgment? For others, it's a question of healing. The healing I'm talking about here is not necessarily only physical healing. Will I trust him to heal the scars of my past and bring me forward on the road of joy? The situations may be different, but the question is the same. What will you do with Jesus? It is a question of the ages, and every person must eventually give an answer. You can stand back and say, I, I don't care about him. You can push him back and say, leave me alone. Aaron Burr was the third vice president of the United States. He actually tied Thomas Jefferson in the number of electoral votes for president. But he lost in a vote in Congress, largely due to the efforts of his opponent, Alexander Hamilton. Burr later challenged Hamilton to duel and killed him. That discredited him 
discredited him politically. And you may know all of that from your American history. He was later tried for treason, but he was acquitted. He lived a long life, but he was an unhappy man. This is the part you may not know. Sadly, Aaron Burr was the grandson of Jonathan Edwards. Although Burr never knew his famous preacher grandfather because he died when he was a young boy, he had a godly heritage, but he walked away from it. Late in life, Aaron Burr was recorded to have said this. He said, 60 years ago, I told God that if he would let me alone, I would let him alone. And God has not bothered me since. Those are sad, sad words. Aaron Burr got what he wanted, but it was a tragic mistake. But you can open your heart and say, Lord Jesus, I welcome you into my life. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you that it is our ability this morning, no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, to be forgiven. We may have trouble forgiving ourselves. We may have difficulty living down the past. But you've assured us that no matter what we've done, that if we will come in repentance, you will accept us. Father, if there's one here this morning that has never claimed you as their personal Lord and Savior, I pray that today might be that day. Help them to understand that they cannot save themselves, but that Jesus has already done everything necessary by paying for our sins on the cross of Calvary, and that all we must do is accept.